Hi, this is Chad, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. It will play in just a moment. But before it does, I want to ask three things of you. First, if you find this sermon impactful, would you please let us know about it by emailing us at respond at creekside.me. We would find that extremely encouraging and helpful in our planning. Second, please consider sharing this content with someone else if you found it valuable. And third, if you are listening to this on a podcast host, please hit subscribe. This will let you know about future sermons and it helps our sermons be heard by more people, something we think is really important. Thanks again for listening. I hope that the sermon will help you learn and live more fully for Jesus. Let me, let me just say at the beginning that maybe this is depressing. Maybe I should save this for the end. But I, I don't have the answers. I only know that we have a serious problem. And that's why this sermon series is getting preached. I feel pretty passionate about the things that American Christians are doing wrong when it comes to politics, which will drive today's service uh, slightly. Uh, but even more, the rest of the series, how we respond to government. We are wrong. We are wrong. I know just very few people that are responding in a biblical, Christian, Jesus-following way when it comes to government and and how we interact with government and what we do with government and all those things. Uh, I've known for a long time uh, that we have a real problem when it comes to how Christians are interacting with with government and politics. It's been uh, something that I, I buy books on when I see them. Um, I feel passionate about. I know that it, I knew, I guess, for a long time, years, like 10 years now, that at some point I would, uh, I would write about it. I haven't done that yet, but uh, currently I get to preach on it. I've never really publicly spoken about these things except to individuals uh, over coffee and things like that. Um, I think that we are doing it incredibly wrong. And I think, let me just be honest with you, that if you don't like the political climate that you currently see in our country, it's because we've been doing it wrong for so long. And I think that we who are Christians are in large part to blame if you see a problem with our current political situation. It's because we have been doing it wrong. And you will see in the words of Jesus this morning, I believe, If it doesn't convict you, I did the sermon wrong. I mean, that's what it comes down to. If it doesn't bother you a little, then I did this sermon wrong. If you don't go, oops, then I did this sermon wrong. Because I think that Jesus' words are so profound, given what I see when I look around at the American Christian culture and how it responds to politics and government. I know it wrong for a couple of reasons. I've read the Bible That's one, and when I look at how Jesus interacted with government, it's vastly different than how his followers interact with government. And and then when you look at how the early Christian church interacted with government, it is vastly different than how American Christians interact with government today. And we claim that we want to model our lives after Jesus, and we claim that the early church did some good things. In fact, they changed the world. You sit in a church today uh, because 
early Christians, early followers of Jesus did certain things so powerfully and so profoundly that the world couldn't help but say, wow, there's something about that. I better explore this Christianity thing. And part of it was how they responded to government. But today it's different, is it not? When people think about Christians and government, they get very angry. And in fact, they point at our response to government as one of the great negative things about our faith. I think that when this became a passionate subject to me, I just was thinking about when I, when I was like, we're doing this wrong. I think it's after I read the book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, And in that book, Philip Yancey, a book that if you've never read it, oh my, uh, go pick it up today. I see it at Goodwill a lot. I don't know what that says about it, but uh, uh, you can find it there a lot. I think he just sold so many copies, but uh, he talks about a meeting that he had with Bill Clinton, and he went to the White House. He met with Bill Clinton. I think they drove around in one of the presidential cars while Bill Clinton was president, and he quotes Bill, Bill Clinton as saying this, this thing. Uh, in fact, he wrote the book. I just learned this this week. He wrote the book because of his interaction with Bill Clinton. Uh, what's so amazing about grace? He wrote it because of Bill Clinton. Here's what Bill Clinton said. I've been in politics long enough to expect criticism and hostility, but I was unprepared for the hatred I get from Christians. Why do Christians hate so much? We're doing something wrong. I want to just put up a few pictures. Uh, I've been saving Facebook posts. Uh, some uh, some are, are too vulgar probably to get up here. But, uh, but here's one I just saw this week. America's first family. First to be scandal-free in 30 years. No drunken children. Totally wholesome family. Hated by most white Christians because of the color of their skin. Now, let me pause and say I disagree with the sentiment. I don't think Barack Obama is hated by most white Christians or a lot of white Christians because of the color of his skin. But I do think he's hated by a lot of white Christians because of his policies. And I don't know, uh, when I read the Bible and when I study the life of Jesus and when I look at the early church, that they were known for hating anybody. Even, in fact, the rulers over them who were evil, 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 evil men beyond any type of evil that we can imagine getting into our White House still in our current political culture. But we are known by outsiders as the people now who hate Barack Obama. They think it might be because he's black, but I think it's probably because we disagree with some of his political stances. One not being that of Nero, which was to kill Christians by lighting them on fire. Yet none of the early Christians seemed to write about how they hated Nero. And none of the people outside of Christianity wrote, oh, by the way, you know what Christians are known for? They're known for hating Nero. No, in fact, the early Christians, as they were persecuted, were known for facing death fearlessly. It was written to them about early Christians that when they died in the Colosseum, that the look on their face was one of total peace and joy. And it was written of them that they totally believed in the afterlife. But it was not written that they were known for hating Nero or any of the other Roman rulers that were so bad. Or how about this picture? Evangelicals, notice the caption, evangelical Christians, that's us at this church, the majority of us, are selling out faith for politics. Uh, Just that that line could be written, 
just that it could exist in the world, that we would sell out our faith for our politics, says that we are doing something wrong. And if you ask the majority of your friends who aren't Christians, they would tell you it's true. This isn't one guy on one blog. Go talk to a non-Christian. Ask him, do you think we're selling out our religion for our politics? And they'll say yes. Or how about this? This is so depressing. Support for Trump sparks rift among evangelicals. There should be no rift among evangelical Christians. In fact, we should be known for unity that is beyond all political views, beyond all races, beyond all nationalities, beyond all personalities, beyond everything. Jesus declares to a bunch of guys that don't have a ton of things in common, hey, you'll be known by your love for one another. But today we're known in our current political climate because what? Trump is sparking a rift among us. God help us if Jesus brought us all together and Donald Trump can cause a rift between us. Or how about this one? Very sad to say, but the extremist repubs have chosen their party over their religion and morals. Christ warned them against this. I do find two things interesting about that. One, that we have a political party because I was unaware. Somebody should have told me that Christianity had a political party that it owned. I I didn't know that. Uh, But apparently the outside world thinks that we have a political party that is ours, and I hate that. Uh, But second, uh, this is bad that we have chosen that party over our religion. And I don't think they're that wrong. I don't think they're that wrong. Or at least we're not giving off a perception that's any different than that. And then this one. I don't even know where this came from. I had saved this. I don't know why this was spoken. It's taken a bit out of context, if I could be honest with you, the picture I had. But I found it important because this is, seems to be like what people think. To me, your patriotism, your faith are sort of the same. That's your choice. Our patriotism and our faith are not the same thing. And the fact that people in the world think that they are tells me that we are doing something wrong. Our politics are ruining our godliness. And the reality is that forever, politics have threatened godliness And today we're going to see that in the story that we're going to look at. And I think Jesus is just going to knock us into our place. I think he's what he says, if we're paying attention, it's just like, oh, wait a minute. We have part of that right, but the other part we are so far from. And I don't know how we got here, but it's just wrong. And this morning, I don't know that I can give you the answer to how we make it right. I hope in the next four weeks, the next five sermons, including the rest of this one, that that we'll at least move towards getting it more right. But if you're honest and you're not just like, well, Chad sounds like a liberal right now, then, then I think that you can agree that we have it wrong. Half the people were thinking that, so let's just get it out there. Uh, we have it wrong, and it's wrong on both sides of the political aisle, for sure. 
Mark 12, 13 through 17 is where we're going to look. And in verse 13, this is what we read. Later, they, they being uh, the Sanhedrin, a group of 71 kind of ruling people, council, they were men, uh, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now, two years before this moment, these two groups of people had already began to plot how they might kill Jesus. Jesus uh, looked at the Pharisees and he kind of put them in their place two years before this because he healed a guy on the Sabbath, but they didn't like that he was doing work on the Sabbath, including healing. They counted that as work. And so he said, is it better to do uh, right or wrong on the Sabbath, basically? And, and then in Mark 3, 6, two years before this, at least, it says this, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And now we come in our story today to the last week of Jesus' life. They've been looking for a way to end Jesus' life, to murder him. That's what they've been looking for for a long time. And they haven't found one. And Jesus' popularity seems to be growing and growing and growing and growing. And in fact, there's a moment just a few days before this. You may have heard of it as the triumphant or triumphal entry where Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the crowds are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees don't like it at all. And it heightens their desire to end Jesus' life because he is a threat to the things that they believe and he is a threat to their power and he is a threat to their influence and he is a threat to their wealth. He is a threat to them. And so it's heightened. And in Mark 12, we see like these three stories where they try to trap Jesus in a way that's not going to make him look bad but is going to result in his death. We'll see in a minute that the question that they're going to ask him, the purpose is that he will lose all of his followers or he will be murdered. But here's the crazy part about this, and it's something that, man, is so true in our world today, and it's, I think, one of the reasons that, that we have to get it right in every area, but we have to get it right when it comes to how we respond to government because these two groups were like oil and water. They could not have been further away in what they believed, yet they come together over one common enemy, and it's Jesus. And we still see that in the world today, Right? Christians become the greater enemy, and so groups that should never get along, should never have anything in common, are able to come together in order to silence the truth that comes from our faith. The Herodians were a political party that wanted to restore Herod, who was a governor over the Judean region. They wanted to restore him to power, back to his governorship. They were pro-Rome. They were pro-politics. They were all about the things of government. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were anti-Rome, would have hated Herod. They didn't like Rome at all. They were against being political. They were focused on their religion. And if it was Roman, it was bad as far as their religion was concerned. And yet here in this story, they say, let's get together and let's end the life of Jesus. In fact, this word catch here doesn't seem that bad in English, but the, the Greek word is the same word that you would use uh, for hunting. The word is better translated trap. They are looking to lay a trap that will 
catch Jesus so that they can kill Jesus. And here's how they begin this trap. As all people do when they're trying to trap somebody else, it seems with flattery. In verse 14, it says, They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And if you know these two groups and how much they hate Jesus, then you know that this was said through their teeth, and they probably struggled to get it out, but they want to flatter Jesus in a way that points him to having that moves him towards having to A, tell the truth. Because if somebody comes up to you and says, I know that you are honest and you are straightforward and you could never be swayed, then what happens? You're like, oh, I better tell the truth this time, right? I mean, it, it gets you trapped. And then they want to butter him up. They're trying to loosen him up. Loosen up, man. You know, I mean, we're feeling good. It's just a conversation. Don't worry about it. We're not trapping here. We like you. This is going to be a fun conversation. Relax. It's okay. And it's all so that they can ask this question. And it seems that Jesus' very life hangs on this question. And here it is. It's not a question that would be asked today if somebody was trying to get you killed, but it's the question of the time, and they ask it, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trapping me, he asked. Now, here's the deal. This tax was a poll tax started in 6 AD. Uh, Basically, the tax was on your breathing. You took a breath, if you're alive, if you have a head, uh, it was also called a head tax, if you have a head, then this tax applied to you. It wasn't based on if you owned property or if you collected an income or if you uh, had a business or anything that we are used to when it comes to being taxed. This was like, you're alive, you're going to pay this tax. Began in 6 AD, like I said, and it was one denarius a day, or a, a year, which is one day's wages a year the government was going to take from you. Now, it is at the time of Jesus like the political question. I mean, it is like the most controversial subject that they could have brought up in their community. And right when the tax came, you may have heard of a guy named Judas not Iscariot, the one who betrays Jesus, but Judas Maccabeus. Uh, You may have heard that term somewhere along the lines if you uh, are a part of church, been around church. But Judas, when this tax came, led a rebellion because he saw this tax as as a uh, question or an affront to the sovereignty of God and a doorway to slavery. That's bad, right? And so he starts this revolt that ends up with a lot of people dying as the Romans squash it. But right from the beginning, I mean, right when Rome is like, hey, we're going to take a census and we're going to tax all of you who are living one uh, day's wages per year, revolt. Now, a few decades later, Jesus is on the scene hanging out. It's still highly controversial and in fact it becomes, it stays so controversial that in 66 A.D., The Jewish people will revolt against Rome again, and the very first thing they will do in that revolt, you want to know what it is, is they mint their own coins, and they say, we're not paying your taxes, we're going to have our own currency, and in 70 AD, Rome obliterates Jerusalem, and it's in large part because they wanted their tax money. 
from the Jewish people. And so Jesus, right in the middle, from 6 AD to 66 AD, here we are somewhere around 30 years after it began in 30 years until the Jews will revolt again. He's on the scene and they ask this question. And here's what the two outcomes are uh, apparently for Jesus. If he says, yes, you should pay the tax, then most of the people or a lot of the people who are following him are going to say, you can't be the Messiah because our Messiah came to lead a a political revolution. So you can't be him. And B, Jesus had a lot of revolutionary people following him. They were called zealots. And all of those zealots were gonna be very upset and they were gonna walk away. Uh, They were gonna walk right away from him. They would no longer be followers of Jesus because they were actually the only group that didn't pay the tax at this time. They were adamant about not paying tax. Everybody else is like, well, I, you know, I don't want to get in trouble or I don't you know, want to make Rome angry, so we'll pay. But, but the zealots, a lot of whom were following Jesus because they thought he was the Messiah that was going to overthrow Rome, they're like, there is no way that we are going to pay that tax. And so they'll go away. Or other side of things, if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, the Herodians are there to go report it to Caesar, and then Caesar comes and he says, wait, you're starting insurrection, I'm going to kill you, and Jesus gets killed. So you can see the dilemma here. In fact, on one side, if Jesus says yes, then the Jewish people might immediately move to have him killed, as they'll do just a few days later anyway. But they might immediately say, hey, Rome, we want you to execute this man because he is blaspheming our God. And on the other side, if he says no, then Rome is going to have him killed. And so they believe that they've asked the question that is going to result in the downfall of Jesus. There is no way out of this question. It's too politically charged. It's too important. People are too mad on each side. It's going to result in his death. Jesus responds in verses 15 and 16. Man, if you don't like Jesus, you should after this response. Because Jesus is going to say something that like shuts everybody up on both sides of any political issue. I mean, it is akin to Jesus saying one thing that would make everybody shut up when it comes to abortion. It's like Jesus saying one thing that would make everybody shut up when it came to the war in the Middle East. It's like one thing that would shut everybody up when it came to whether we should tax the rich more or less. It's like one sentence and Jesus shuts down the entire argument. Here's what he says. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, this is it, this is the brilliant line. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, this denarius was two-sided as all coins are. And the denarius had a picture of Tiberius, the Roman Caesar at the time, on one side. And with that inscription, it said, this is Son of the divine. Now think about that. We believe that Jesus is son of the divine. And now here's this coin that's been given to him. And it says on one side, son of Augustus, basically, uh, who was divine, son of the divine. On the other side was probably a picture of his mom, Livia. And it said above it, high priest. This coin for Jewish people, and I would even say us alike today, was 
a mobile idol. I mean, they are declaring things about Caesar and his mother that are true only now of Jesus and in the Jewish world were only true of the coming Messiah and their high priest. They had a high priest. This is a walking idol. It doesn't walk. This is an idol that you walk around with. And so you can see even more in this moment that this is so politically charged because it's like, is Jesus going to support idolatry? Is he going to support idolatry in this moment? Because if we're, and interesting, by the way, Jesus doesn't have one of these on him, one of these mobile idols. I find that so fascinating. He has to find one in the crowd. But he's, it's a mobile idol. And Jesus just says this thing that's so profound. He says, let Caesar have his idols. Let Caesar have his coins. He made them. In fact, in that world, uh, it was believed, it was thought of. We don't think of it like this because we don't have a dictator or an emperor. But it was like, those are his coins. We just get to use them. He was the only one, the emperor, uh, the, the Caesar of Rome, that could actually have coins minted, that could produce currency. And Jesus just says, it's an idol, sure. But you can give it back to the guy who owns it. I mean, you can envision this, right? You can get a picture of this. If, if somebody said, hey, here's my idol, you'd have every right to give the idol back. Here you go. If you want it that badly, sure, go ahead and take it. And that's what Jesus says. And in doing so, he says a sentence uh, that I would never have enough time to study, to be honest with you. Books are written on this sentence and the next sentence. Lots of them. Because we all can see, I think, just in reading it, that the implications go far beyond just paying taxes. It says something about how we are to respond to governments. And here's some things that I want you to know before I launch into the next part and perhaps make you more angry than I am, than you already are. Uh, first, first, obedience to a secular power doesn't inherently, notice, doesn't inherently conflict with an obligation to God. There are times when obedience to a government conflicts with an obligation to God. That will be our final sermon in this series. We'll talk all about that. But just simply being obedient to government does not mean that you are being disobedient to God. When you drive down the road and you make a decision to go the speed limit, you aren't making the president the idol of your life. You with me? That could be a belief. It'd be a weird belief, but that could be a belief, right? Another thing. We don't, listen to this, listen to this, because you're maybe going to feel like I'm saying this in, in just a few minutes, but listen to this. You don't need to avoid governmental or political things altogether. What I'm about to say, what Jesus, I think, is about to say to you is not, you can't be involved in politics. You can't have an opinion on politics. You can't vote if you really love Jesus, if you really love me. This isn't that we avoid government altogether. In fact, we'll see next week that government has been given for our good, even the bad ones. 
And so Jesus doesn't say, hey, you can't be obedient. In fact, he says you can be obedient to governmental powers and still love me. And he says you don't have to avoid government and political things altogether. And I would add, have a political opinion. Have a well-informed, researched political opinion. But have a political, that was just me, not Jesus. Have a political opinion. And then this one. Our response to government is a part of our response to God. That's a big deal. We believe separation of church and state. Uh, in our denomination, we have perhaps the strongest statement of separation of church and state that you'll ever read in print. Uh, we also have a denomination that doesn't seem to want to practice that, but uh, now I'm in trouble. But, uh, but that's, uh, that's the reality, is that we have like the strongest statement about separation of church and state. We believe in those things, but what that kind of has led to in our country, because we're like church, state, separate, is something that Jesus is going to tell us to avoid in his next line, and that is forgetting about God when we think about how we respond to politics and government. Jesus shows us that our obligation to government, what we do when we respond to government, how we vote, how we think about politics, it all needs to be under our relationship with God. It's a part of it. Jesus just could have said, paid it. But he wants us to remember that this is a spiritual thing he's, not, he's talking about. It's not just you have politics and you have God. It's you have politics underneath your relationship to God. And that's exactly what he says. Oh, and by the way, pay taxes. That's, a, that's another principle that we need to, to remember here. And pay taxes even if you don't like the laws because they didn't like the laws. Uh, pay taxes. Whose inscription is on our money? Uh, give it back to them. Uh, that's what I would say uh, as a fourth point there. But this next part is... The, I think we all kind of know that as American Christians, right? Like, obviously, I can be a part of government, and obviously, I can vote, and obviously, a lot of people would say you should vote, and I mean, this is a, this is a thing that we kind of grow up with, and it's a part of our culture and all that, and so while the Jews would have been shocked by Jesus' first sentence, we, I think, need to be shocked by the second one, even though it's not a shocking statement. It's just something I think that we have neglected or forgotten when it comes to government. And this is what he says. And to God, what is God's? Give to, back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's, and to God what is God's. Now, there's a bunch of things that are really, really important. Um, first, theocracy isn't the goal. Theocracy meaning uh, just a nation that is governed solely by God. The Jews had that for a little while when they were wandering around in the desert while they had judges before they had a king. We will have that again someday when Jesus returns. God will be in the center of the holy city and he will be in charge. But right now that's not the goal. Another thing that you need to see that says this is not, this is not, and that is that we place God underneath the state. Now, most Christians don't think that, obviously, but there has been groups, even groups, uh, that claim to be Christian-like in the history of our world uh, that would say God goes underneath state. Look, they would say, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and then, 
This is how it would be worded. And then give to God what is God's. That's probably most famously, uh, most famously has been done by a group called the Nazis who said we have our government and the church will say, well, we'll tell the church what to do. Our God will go under our governments. Uh, number three, and this has been used, this passage has been used for this in the past, that God and state are equal. God and state are equal. And in fact, in the history of the church, this has become a real issue. You had a religious leader and a political leader. A religious leader who told people what to do spiritually and then a political leader who told people what to do and everything else. And you saw two sides of your life. Well, I serve God over here and government over here and God over here and government over here. That is not the goal. And I would add this, I didn't write this one down, but uh, it's something that it came across my radar. In the history of the church, we've also seen this idea that we have one ruler of state and church. The king of England is also head of the church, high priest. And this is not something that Jesus would allow, given what Jesus has said here. What Jesus does say is, give Caesar his money and God your lives and... Uh, it's fascinating because if you were to go all the way back to the beginning of our Bible, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we read this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The coin, it has the inscription, the image, the likeness of Caesar but we, created humanity, have the inscription, the image of God upon us. What Jesus says is you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You give to the government what is the government's. You give to politics what is politics. But remember that you are entirely mine. You see, while we would never think, well, it's God and government separately, I think that is how we have treated it in American Christianity and in the modern world. We have said, I will give to God what is mine. He has my Sunday mornings and some prayers and all of that. And I will act however I want when it comes to politics and getting what I believe is right pushed forward. And that is not the point. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but your entire lives are God's, including what you do with politics and how you respond to government. We are getting it wrong. This is what he says. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And if I could add a sentence because it's really important and it's the forgotten part, do not give to Caesar what is God's. And we have. The Pillar New Testament commentary said, one cannot consider political and civil duties apart from faith, but only as expressions of the prior and ultimate claims of God. The NIV Life Application Commentary says, each Christian must know where to draw the line between the things that are Caesar's and those that are God's, and, notice this line, act responsibly, notice it when I can read it, act responsibly, Act responsibly, thank you. Let me try it one more time. Act responsibly and vigilantly to see that it is not crossed. Act responsibly and vigilantly to see that you don't cross the line, that you do not give to Caesar that which is God's. 
And this is the problem. Because we've given so many things to Caesar that are God's. We've given our hope to the president. I hear people say things like, if that person is elected, everything is going to go terribly. Oh, so you've placed your hope in a presidential candidate then. My hope happens to be in Jesus, uh, but, you know, good luck with that. Uh, One author said that a whole transformation of values can change our world. Christianity can change the world, but we seem to think that a political force, a political party, a political candidate can change the world. Or uh, just right along the lines with that, security. We're like, well, I'll be just so secure and uh, I'll be stable and I'll, I'll feel good if one candidate gets elected and not the other. My hope, my foundation is built on Jesus' blood and righteousness, not anything else. Uh, But good luck with your candidate. Uh, Some people have placed their morality in a political party or in what government says is right and wrong. And there's almost this idea that I see, and especially young Christians, it's like, well, it's allowed now, so it must be good. My morality is found in the word of God, not in what our government says is right or wrong. And if your morality is based in what government says is right and wrong, then you have the wrong morality, and it's not a very good one, frankly, because there's a lot of things that are legal that are not right. Some people have given their devotion to a political party. Some people have given their passion to a political candidate. And our love and our passion and our devotion are all supposed to be given to the God that we serve. So I'll say again, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's, do not give to Caesar what is God's. But most of you, if you're Christians, you would say, well, wait a minute now, my my faith is dictating what I do politically. And so I'm in the right, but I still think you're in the wrong, and I want to tell you why. If your first thought is he probably deserved it when you hear about a black man's death, then you have given to Caesar that which is God's. Do you hear me? If your first thought is he probably deserved it when you hear of a black man's death, then you have given to Caesar that which is God's. If you have given up a biblical morality for the sake of a liberal agenda, then you have given to Caesar that which is God's. If you care more about keeping Mexicans out of the United States than you do getting them into heaven, then you have given that which is Caesar, that which is God's to Caesar. You hear me? If you care more about building a wall so they cannot get into this country than you do about getting them into heaven, then you have given to Caesar that which is God's. There is no question about that. If you slander politicians and not just their policies, then you've given to Caesar that which is God's. If you are fearful at all, about what will happen if one candidate gets elected and not the other, then you've given to Caesar that which is God's because your hope should be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. If you are more willing to offend, to push your political stance than you are, to talk to somebody about Jesus our Savior, then you have given to Caesar that which is God's. And you are wrong. The problem is not that we don't give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We do that in America. And we give a lot of things to God's, but we have given so many things to Caesar 
that are only rightfully our God's. I want to put one more up here. One more image before I close this. It is staggering, this picture right here. It's coming. Just take a second and read it. Dinesh D'Souza is, in fact, one of the great modern Christian apologists. He is a man that defends and debates Christianity as well as almost anybody in our nation. He, in fact, wrote a book uh, that is an incredible book, and I will not discredit the quality of that book um, because of his words here, but he wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Christianity, and then he seemed to have forgotten this is garbage. This is satanic. This is trash. This is evil. This is giving to Caesar that which is rightfully God's, and it has no, no, no place in Christianity. Now look up here. Look up here. Have a political opinion. Vote. Support a politician. I don't care. It's connected to your godliness, I, I would offer, make all of your political views to the best you can, godly political views. Uh, pretty impossible if you fall into, uh, if you try to pick a party, but do your best. Share your political opinion with people. I don't care. But don't, do not, give to Caesar that which is God's. It is hurting. It is, in some cases, ruining our witness to this country because they look at us and they go they've replaced love with hate because they don't like how people vote you give to Caesar what is Caesar's you give to God what is God's but do not do not give to Caesar that which is God's let me pray for us in our country Lord Man, I hope people are convicted. It's just, it's stupid, Lord. Seems like half the Christians I know, Lord, are just angry about politics, and half the Christians I know forget you when it comes to politics and government, and Lord, I don't know, just... Just return our, our Christianity here, Lord, in our nation to a place we are not known for being political jerks, but we are known once again for being passionate followers of Jesus. I pray that once again, Lord, we would be known for moving morality forward and not a political agenda. I pray that we would be known, God, for loving people of all races, God. I pray that we would be known for loving our enemies, God, let alone our, uh, our political opposites, Father. I, I pray, God, that we would care about our government leaders, that we would not slander them, but we would 
pray for them. I pray, God, that we would not think that revival can be started by having the right laws. But we would remember, God, that revival started once and can start again, God, if we passionately follow you, even to the point of death. Lord, I ask that we would not be known for a party, but we would be known for our Savior and our passion to him. I pray, God, that both left and right would not tune out your words or this sermon because it didn't fit their narrow box, but they would heed your words and they would, Lord, not come to the center politically, but center their lives once again around the cross. Jesus, in fact, your cross, the symbol that's right in front of us right now, is so anti what we've become when it comes to our response to government. You didn't start a political takeover. You willingly gave yourself to the very end to the political governmental powers so that they might come into your kingdom. And we, Jesus, who live here now, who are Christians, we don't belong to the United States of America. We belong to your kingdom. We are citizens of heaven, God. And let us live out the morality and the values and the goodness of that kingdom, Lord. Jesus, we got it wrong. We got it wrong. We're getting it wrong. And I want us to change and get it right. Because I don't care who is president, Lord. I care how many people join me in your kingdom someday. Help us to get it right. Convict our hearts. In your name, amen.